Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Christ the King. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here. If you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're with us this morning. Um, if, if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you uh, before, I would love to uh, today. Uh, if you can stick around for a few minutes, I'd love to formally welcome you and greet you, because uh, we are glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, we are uh, in Matthew chapter uh, 16 this morning, so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 16. Um, it's also printed in your order of service, uh, Matthew chapter 16. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at different episodes in the life of Peter. Um, so that means we're hopping around in the gospel narratives. Uh, we're we're going to be in Matthew for a few more weeks, but, but then we'll start to move around a little bit more. And as we're looking at Peter, uh, remember, we're not just looking at Peter, but we're really looking at Peter's interaction with Jesus, and more importantly, how Jesus interacts with Peter. Um, and, and I don't know if, if you're like me, I, I think that you are in this way, but uh, we can resonate an awful lot with Peter, right? I think that every time I read through the Gospels and you come across something that Peter does or he says, uh, you think, huh, uh, that's probably what I would have done. Or um, that's what I wish I would have said, but there's no way I would have the guts to say that because uh, I'm not as impetuous, but in my heart I'm as impetuous, right? Like we start to resonate with Peter because we see things in Peter that we see in ourselves. Um, we, we see the ways that Peter uh, falters and we see his foibles and uh, it, it endears us to him, right? It endears us to him because he, he's like us. He's growing. Uh, he hasn't arrived yet. He's heard the call of Jesus, he's following him, he's putting his trust in Christ, but yet he still has a long way to go, just like me, just like you, right? We're, we're growing in what it means to follow Jesus, and that's why Peter is actually a great study, because he gives us a microscopic view of what it looks like to follow Christ. But even as Peter gets a lot of things wrong, next week we're going to see him get something very, very wrong. But even as he gets things wrong, he actually, in this passage, gets something very right, something of greatest importance. And so let's go ahead and read Matthew 16. We'll begin in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, it is true that your son, our Lord Jesus, he is the Christ. He is the one that we gather to worship. He is the one that we sing praise to. And he is the one that we desire to be honored in this time. And so we pray that you would allow my words and all of our hearts to give you glory to please you, to honor you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Well, Scott McKnight is a New Testament professor. Uh, he's a scholar, a New Testament scholar, and before he, or in the very beginning stages of his scholarly career, he was a professor at North Park University, a Christian college in Chicago. And Scott McKnight would start his semester, his year off with his new students the same way every year. They would filter into the classroom, they'd take their seats, they would sit down and they would expect to hear about the syllabus, all the different topics they'd engage in, the different books that they would read. But, but Scott McKnight had a different plan for them on this first day. You see, instead of going over all the details of the class, he would give them a test. <laughs> It's the first day of school, and they're going to take a test. Now, this test wasn't for a grade. He was trying to assess their awareness, their knowledge of Jesus. But it wasn't like a test that we would expect about Jesus, especially in a Christian school, right? It wasn't like who were his disciples and what were the different titles and all those sorts of things. He asked questions like, what do you think Jesus is like? Is Jesus moody? Uh, is, 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 uh, Jesus, did, does Jesus ever get nervous? Is Jesus a, 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 a very outgoing extrovert, or is he a shy introvert? It was those sorts of questions that he would ask them. There were 24 questions in total, and the students would answer these 24 questions and pass the test back in, but then he had another test for them, another 24 questions. It was similar to the first set of 24 questions, but now there was a little bit of difference. You see, now he wasn't asking the students what Jesus is like, what they thought Jesus was like, but now what are they like? What are their qualities? What are their characteristics? You know, are you moody? Are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? And they would answer these questions, these 48 questions, and there was no, uh, there was no right or wrong. There wasn't a grade, and he would take them all in, and he would analyze them and look at them, and he realized something. What do you think he found as he compared them? What he found was that almost everyone thought that Jesus was just like them. In fact, McKnight said, the test results suggest that even though we like to think we are becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more the case. We try to make Jesus more like us. Which is exactly what the French philosopher Voltaire said when he said, if God has made us in his image, we have returned him the favor. <laughs> right? I mean, what do you think Jesus is like? Who is he? Is Jesus just like us? Or are we supposed to be like him? And if we are supposed to be like him, is he just, are we supposed to be like him as he is like us? Or are we supposed to change and become like him? You see, that, that's actually a very important question. What is Jesus like? Who is Jesus? In fact, it is the most important question you will ever answer. It's the most important, and, and that's not, that's not uh, me uh, using hyperbole. That's not the pastor up here pontificating. That is the most important question you can ever answer. Who is Jesus? What is he like? Because as Christians, we believe that at the very center of human history, at the center of the entire universe, is Christ. And what we believe about him changes our lives. So who is he? Who do you say that Jesus is? Well, that's the question that gets asked throughout the Gospels. It gets asked by people about Jesus. You remember he returns to his hometown and people are like, hey, isn't that Mary and Joseph's son? Right? Tongue in cheek. They're like, huh, we remember how Mary got pregnant. Right? They're wondering, is this, who is this guy? 
And even John the Baptist, his followers, right, they came to Jesus and said, are you the one that we're waiting for or should we wait for another? Is there someone still to come? And even his disciples, after they see the miracle in the boat, right, what do they say? Who is this? Like, who is this guy that even the winds and the waves listen to his voice? Who is he? It is a question that is asked frequently throughout the Gospels, but now in this scene, Jesus is turning the question, right? He says to his disciples in verse 13, who do the people say the Son of Man is? He's wanting to know, what does the crowd think about him? So I want you to think about your neighbors. I want you to think about your coworkers and your classmates. If you were sitting across the table from them, you're having lunch or, or breakfast, and, and you said to them, so who, who is Jesus? What do you think about this man that the whole Christian faith is built around? What do you think they would say? I imagine that you'd probably hear things like Jesus was a great religious leader. He was a man of high moral character. Maybe some would say he was a social revolutionary or an incredible teacher. When the crowds were asked, when the disciples were asked, the crowd said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You see, they had seen what Jesus had done his miracles and all that he had said, and he had done and said things that were in keeping with a prophet. So this actually isn't that bad of a a beginning, right? Maybe he's like Elijah. Maybe he's like Jeremiah. Maybe he's actually one of them come back, or maybe he's the great prophet that Moses foretold. It's a good start, but it's an incomplete start. You see, this answer, he's one of the prophets, it's not full. And so Jesus then asks his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Okay, so now forget about your neighbors, how they would answer. How would you answer that? Well, here's where Peter shines. The spokesman of the disciples, he speaks up in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter gets it right. For all the mistakes Peter is going to make over the course of his life, he gets the confession right. When he is put to the test, when he is asked the question, he knows exactly the answer to give. You are the Christ. Peter is acknowledging that Jesus isn't just a prophet and he's not only a great teacher or merely a moral example. He is the Lord. You see, that's what that word Christ is getting at. Kids, um, Christ isn't Jesus' last name, (laughs) right? Uh, it's not Jesus Christ as though he's like a bowman or a Burke or a guidey. Like that, it's not his last name. Christ is a title. It's a title. It means Messiah. In fact, the Old Testament Hebrew word, it, it sounds like the word, our English word Messiah. It literally means anointed one. Anointed one. And so when Peter says, you are the Christ, what he is doing is he is invoking The promise that was made to David that there would be one who would come after him. You see, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a promise to David that there would be a king who would come in the line of David. And this king would be a forever king. His kingdom would have no end, and he would be a son to God, and God would be a father to the king. And then David, in in Psalm chapter 2, he speaks of this king who is to come, and he calls him the anointed one, which is the Hebrew word for Messiah. He is the Christ. 
You see, when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he is saying that Jesus is the king that they have been waiting for. He is the king of promise. And as this king has come, this has incredible, this has serious implications, not only for the disciples, but also for us. You see, for anyone who says that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord, we're not just making a confession that's filled with content, but we're making a confession that requires a commitment. We're making a confession that requires a commitment because Jesus being the Christ, the Son of the living God, the King, means that as his subjects, we are to be in subjection to him. It means he has absolute control over our lives. This is more than just confessing some content. It's committing to the one we confess. This is the difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. Y'all know the difference, right? Like we can have all sorts of content. We can understand who, oh yeah, he's the fulfillment of prophecy. He's the king to come, right? He has all these titles like Christ, you know, like Emmanuel, all these. We can fill our heads with all this content, but there is a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing him. There's a difference between simply confessing some content and committing to the one that we confess. You see, we don't just want to know that Jesus is the Christ. We want to know that he is the Christ. So how do you know if you know? (laughs) How do you know if you know? Like, what is your life going to look like if you really know that Jesus is the Christ? Well, I, th- I think it's going to mean a few things. First is it's going to mean complete surrender to him. We're going to talk about that next week, so I'm going to hold off. Okay, that'll be, that'll be like our cliffhanger for next week. What does surrender look like? Um, but, but we're going to get into that next week. But, so it's, it looks at least like surrender, but it also looks like thanksgiving. And it also looks like humility. And the reason why I say thanksgiving and humility is because of what Jesus says to Peter in verse 17. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Now that Bar-Jonah just means son of Jonah, okay? Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay, so did you hear what he's saying to Peter? Your confession is right, but you know what? You didn't figure this out on your own. That's what he's saying, right? Jesus is saying flesh, blood, understanding, intelligence, work ethic, none of it, nothing that you bring is allowing you to see who I am. It has been revealed to you. Peter, it's as though your eyes were blinded, but now you can see. That there is nothing that you can bring to understand who I am. But the only reason that you can make this confession, the only reason that you can see that I am the Christ, is because my Father who is in heaven, has revealed it to you. That's why we should have thanksgiving and humility. Thanksgiving because we couldn't have done it on our own. Listen, as smart as y'all are, and some of y'all are like wicked smart, right? Like degrees and titles and like through the roof intelligence, right? Like some of y'all are that way. It doesn't matter how smart you are. Because your intelligence doesn't make you see this. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have, MDiv, THM, PhD, you know, whatever you want to have. Those aren't enough. 
Because to have the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, our eyes have to be opened by the Father. And so it is something that is apart from us. If it is something that we could not have done, the fact that our eyes are open should stir in us thanksgiving. But it also should stir in us humility. Because it had nothing to do with me or you. I've said this before. Christians of all people in the world should be the most humble. We should be the most humble because we know there is nothing that we bring. Right? We even sing it. Right? Nothing in my hands I bring simply to your cross I sing. Like, those aren't just words that we sing because it, it sounds good. That is reality. We should be the most humble of all people. Humble before God because he has revealed it to us, but also humble with one another. I mean, sadly to say, in my own life, especially talking to brothers and sisters who, who uh, do not share our theological understandings, Humility has not been the characteristic that has marked me. And I imagine it's the same for many of us. And yet we should be, shouldn't we? If it is only because God has revealed it to us, only because he has opened our eyes, shouldn't we be filled with humility and thanksgiving? He has shown it. He has removed the scales we can see. And so if our lives are filled with thanksgiving, with surrender, with humility, those are indications that we really know he is the Christ. So who is Jesus? He's the king. He's the king whom we submit every fiber of our being and every part of our lives to. But this passage doesn't just tell us who Jesus is, it also tells us what Jesus guarantees. He's building his church. That's the first thing he guarantees. Look, In verse 18, after affirming Peter's confession, Jesus then says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now that little phrase, on this rock, um, we, we have to pause and just talk about that for a second because there is a lot of discussion about what this means. And there are two different two main perspectives on this. The first is is that the rock is referring specifically to Peter that the church is being built upon Peter. And so this is uh, the interpretation of Rome, the Roman church, okay? And so Peter is the, the rock in which the church is built upon. He's basically the first pope. And every other pope after him has a direct line to Peter, this apostolic succession in this way. Then there's the other option, which is the the Protestant understanding, or or generally the Protestant understanding, that Jesus is referring to Peter's profession, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and upon this profession I will build my church. Okay, so which is it? Well, I, I think we have to say that there is something unique about Peter and the apostles. We have to say that. Because Jesus uses this word rock, which sounds like Peter's name, He could have used any other name, right? He could have used another word to indicate what he's speaking about. So so I think it does point to the uniqueness of Peter and the apostolic office and the very fact that Ephesians 2 talks this way, right? Ephesians 2 says that the church is being built on the foundation of what? The prophets and the apostles, right? So there is something unique about them, and yet, and yet... It is not just upon them that the church is being built. Because right after that, Paul says the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. 
And Jesus is the chief cornerstone. So there might be a foundation, but really the structure is being held together by Christ. Right? That's what Paul's saying. That's what Paul is saying. And in fact, Peter also, in 1 Peter chapter 2, says that Jesus is a living stone, a chosen and precious stone, chosen and precious in the sight of God. Multiple times in that chapter, he speaks of Jesus being the rock, being the cornerstone. And I think that what he's doing in 1 Peter 2, to continue to bring this up again and again and again, is to say, I'm not the rock. I know that's my name, but Jesus is the one in whom the whole structure is built upon. And so we have to say that the apostles and Peter, they're given honor, but the church is built upon Christ. It's built upon Christ. Not Peter, not a pope. It's built upon Christ. And the apostles and the church after, we are messengers of this building, of this message. You see, the most important thing that we can see from this portion is that Jesus is building his church. That he is going to do it, and he actually uses his church to build his church. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now that sounds like maybe, you know, like we get to decide. Like we get to decide who gets in and who gets out. So the church gets to decide, like, you know what, I like, I like y'all, so we're going to hang out for all of eternity, but um, I don't know. <laughs> That's not what Jesus is saying, right? Because that would be against everything else we know of Scripture, right? God determines who comes into his kingdom and who is let out. So what does Jesus mean when he says, you have been given the keys to the kingdom? Well, think about the metaphor. A key opens, right? It, it unlocks a gate or a door, but it also locks it shut. And so the metaphor is that as we, as we are proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that we are throwing open the, king, the doors to the kingdom for all those who would receive it and come in, but for those who would reject it, that the, the gates are closed. And that that does fall upon the church to declare that, that if you receive Christ, you are welcomed into the kingdom, but if you reject him, then you are closed off from the kingdom. Now, this has all sorts of different implications as far as, like, church discipline, all those sorts of things. And, and you can come to the new members class next time, and Chuck can describe it as he did this morning to you. But, but what it's getting at is that the key of proclaiming the gospel opens wide the kingdom. And that ultimately, this binding and loosing is derivative to Christ because ultimately, as Isaiah 22 and Revelation 3 tells us, that Jesus holds the keys to the kingdom. And yet, we are the ones who proclaim it now. He has given us this responsibility. You see, what he is doing is building his church by using his church. Okay, so, listen, whether you're concerned about the, uh, the, the debates about the rock or, or the gate, like if, if you hear nothing else from this point, it is this. Jesus is building his church. He has guaranteed it. That the church will not fail. Because that is the next thing that Jesus guarantees. Not only that he will build his church, but that his church will have victory. Look again at verse 18. 
He says, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, that's a little interesting phrase, the gates of hell, right? So um, hell, or maybe in some of your translations, if you're using a different translation, it might say Hades. It's simply the place of death. And Jesus is contrasting the place of death with the kingdom of God, okay, with the kingdom of God, which is the place of life. That's obvious. But the interesting thing is that he says the gates of hell, okay, the gates of hell. So let's think about that for a second, because gates in a militaristic context, they're important because they defend a city from a from an army, from a force that is advancing on the city. And so what Jesus is saying here is that these gates, they don't take ground, right? Like gates don't take ground. They don't advance. They're simply to stop the advancing force. Now this is fascinating because what Jesus is telling us is that that these gates of hell are being advanced upon, right? So think about it in a militaristic context. Oftentimes, um, need a drink, or I'm going to drop that. Okay. Um, oftentimes, the way we think about good and evil, let's think about that. The way that we often think about good and evil is that good and evil are not only opposing forces, but that they're equal and opposing forces, right? And we're not sure who's really going to win. Like, maybe evil will advance a little bit, they'll take a little bit of ground, and then good will take a little bit of ground, and it keeps going back and forth and back and forth, and we're not really sure how the whole story is going to end up, right? I mean, every great story is built around this, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? Like, they're, they're all built around that. Like, is Iron Man going to win, or is Ultron going to win? Because Ultron looks pretty, pretty strong, right? And we're not really sure until the very end when they, you know, the good guys pull something out of their hat, and amazing, they win. And that's how we think about the world often. Good and evil is being equal and opposing forces, but that's not the world that God reigns over. Yes, there's good and evil, but what God is telling us, what Jesus is telling us in this passage, is that they're not equal forces. Evil doesn't win, y'all. Wickedness doesn't win. You see, the image that Jesus is giving us is that the kingdom of God is what is advancing. That the kingdom of God is what's storming the gates of hell. And those gates aren't strong enough to keep God's kingdom from overthrowing it. That is the image that we have here. Now that doesn't mean we're triumphalistic as though there's no danger because even as the kingdom of God is advancing on the gates of hell, there are still archers on the wall shooting their arrows at God's people. We know this because Ephesians 6 tells us that the evil one is shooting flaming darts at us. And 1 Peter says that the devil is like a roaring lion ready to devour. And so there is a threat. But what Jesus is telling us is that despite the threat, the forces of evil, the powers of Satan, they can't stop God's kingdom from advancing. They can't stop God's church from being built. You see, we don't have to wonder about the end of the story. See, that's why this is so important. This is why we need to hear this, because we don't need to wor- worry or, or think that we don't know the end of the story. I have a friend um, who I recommended a book to you recently. It was actually about a year ago. It's called The Brothers K. So not The Brothers Karamazov. I know that that's what people think of, the, but it's called The Brothers K. Has anyone read that in here? No. 
okay. So, uh, except for my friend who I loaned it to. Okay, so The Brothers K is this wonderful book about this family, about this dad who played baseball and his sons. So maybe you can see why I might like it. Um, and, um, and it's this amazing dynamic, family dynamic that goes on. Like, because the, the father-son relationship and the brother relationship and the way baseball gets played, it's, it's this wonderful story. And so my friend, who loves baseball and has sons, I said, you should read this. So he reads it and he loves it. He loves it so much he decides my son needs to read this. So he goes on Amazon, he buys his son a copy of it, it gets sent to him, and his son starts reading it. About a month later, I get a text. I'm part of a text string now with him and his son, and it's from his son, and his son is irate. He is angry. He's furious. Not because he hates the book, he actually loves the book, but he's been reading it for the last month, and he got to the very end, and the last three or four or five pages were ripped out, and he has no idea how it ended. And he's so mad at his dad because his dad bought him a used book on Amazon. (laughs) And it did, you know, it said like new, like new, (laughs) you know. And it's missing the end, so he has no idea how the story ends. And so he's like, Penny, scan it, take pictures, please send it because I have to know. And I think sometimes that's how we live. We live as though we're, we're unsure of the end. Like, like the last pages, they haven't, haven't just been ripped out, but they haven't been written. And we're not sure how the, the story of our lives is going to end, right? And, and so, so we get worried. Like, just think about last week when we talked about doubt. When we're in the midst of doubting, when we're in the midst of times and circumstances that are challenging and hard, when there's disease and distress, when there's sickness and sadness, all those things, it can make it feel like we have no idea how the end is going to come. It can actually make us feel like the powers of hell, the gates of hell, have been thrown over and Satan is advancing, can't it? I mean, in fact, in a few minutes, we're going to sing a song. After communion, we're going to sing a song about Christ's church. And the songs, one of the stanzas goes like this. It says, Though with a scornful wonder, men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? Y'all know that cry. How long? How long will it feel like Satan is advancing? It's when we're crying out how long that we need to hear these words of Jesus, the assurance that Christ gives us. But you know, even as we sing that song, the song doesn't end with how long. It says, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up how long, and soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. You see, friends, it's in the midst of the doubting and of the distress and of the crying out how long that we need the assurance of Jesus that no matter what we may be experiencing, his church will have the victory. His church will never fade It will have no end. And so, friends, that's why we can have hope. And that's why we can be filled with thanksgiving. And that's why we can have courage and confidence and commitment. Because Christ, 
the one we confess? Because Jesus, the son of the living God, because Jesus himself is building his church of which we are a part. And because Jesus has guaranteed that no matter how many times we cry out, how long, his church will have the victory. And it will have the victory because Christ himself is victorious. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you have sent your Son, our Lord Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one who brings life, the one who has brought battle against sin and death and the devil and the flesh and has shown himself victorious. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us now to live with thanksgiving, to live with humility, to live with commitment to our victorious King. In whose name we pray and God's people said, amen.